All the road and go. Where am I to go, me Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go podcast. Today we are in the old Pioneer store in Chloride, New Mexico. A little bit of history here. We've done several different podcasts in the last couple days, and every museum I have been to said, you have to go to Chloride and visit the general store that was there. And we did today. I've stepped through the front door, and this place is absolutely amazing. But more than that, it's got a really cool backstory. We're here with the owner of the store. Her name is Linda, and she's going to tell us some history about this little place and why it's here and what she's got. Welcome, Linda, to Where Am I to Go podcast. Well, I'm glad, glad you came to Chloride. Thank you. Um, to give you a little bit of the history on the, the Pioneer store, it was built by a man named James Daglish in 1880. And he ran the store until 1897. That year, he moved his family down to Hillsboro, which is south of Hereaways, leased the store out for a number of years. And in 1908, he sold the Pioneer store to the James brothers. They ran it until 1923. At that time, they boarded up the windows, locked the doors, and just walked away, leaving everything inside, food items included. This, Why did they do that? There is a separate story, which I'll tell you. Okay. It, it, it's kind of a long one, so we'll do it as a separate thing. Okay. Anyway, the, the building sat sealed uh, like a giant time capsule for over 70 years, during which time the bats and the rats were pretty much the only ones inside of it. In about 1994-95, my parents started to do the restoration on this building, and at least 90% of what you see on display was in the building when they first opened it up. Really? Most of the other 10% is from other old buildings that we own here in Chloride, and I would imagine a good portion of those would have been purchased through the Pioneer store originally. The other thing that I think was really wonderful is back in 1977, when my parents first found Chloride, there were 13 people living in town, and of those, seven were in their 70s and older, and they were all sons and daughters and nieces and nephews of the people who had built the town. Really? So we were able to learn a lot of the history from those folks, yeah. Oh, I'll bet. Yeah, it was great to just sit and, and talk with them. Okay, so when was chloride founded? Well, the silver, word about the silver got out in 1879. Okay. And a tent city sprang up overnight. Uh, the town was platted in 1880, and the official town site status was granted uh, 1884. Okay. And so this was a silver mining community? Primarily silver. Yeah, there were actually five things that the miners could get paid for here. Silver, gold, lead, copper, and zinc. But primarily this was silver country. Okay. And was there a big corporation came in here to mine this, or was it just all no, private miners? This was all individual mines. There were some consortiums. There were some that were owned by larger companies, but this was not like a company town. Okay. You know? Uh, so all the businesses were individually owned. All the mines were individually owned. Uh, there were over 480 surveyed mines within this mining district. Wow. And that's just the diggings they thought was worth pay paying to have a survey done. There was a lot of digging besides that. Okay. So there was a lot of activity here in the old days. And how many people lived here at its peak? Over 3,000 during the boom years. Really? Yeah, and there were six or eight other little towns within this mining district that maybe had 500 to 1,500 people. So, so you, there, was, there was a big population in a pretty small area. 
Okay. Um, more people were present in uh, this, this mining district. It's called the Apache Mining District. And there was more people in the Apache Mining District in the boom years than there are in an entire county today. Okay. Now, did, you, the, did this uh, mine district, did that include towns like Hillsboro? No. The, that this was a different is, mining district. That was, okay. This, our mining district was pretty much just in the northwest corner of Sierra County. Okay, and the only town that's, well, is Winston part of it? Winston was part of it, yeah. Okay, so we drove through Winston, and then there's chloride. Are there any other towns that still exist, or are they all pretty much disappeared? They're empty. Um, there might be a few buildings standing. Some of them you could stand smack dab in the middle of the town and never know there was a town there. There's just nothing left of them. Okay. Yeah. Wow. And so, so you still had 13 people living here in 1996? 1977. 1977. Yeah. What's the population now? 12. The population's 12 right now. 12 people, yes. Okay, because when I drove in, it looked like it was bigger than that. <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot more buildings that right. are standing. There's about 30 of the old original buildings that are still standing. And... My family has been trying to restore as many of them as we can. We don't own all of them, but we own about half of them. And with the exception of one that we've just acquired, we have done at least stabilization work, if not full-on restoration work, on the buildings that we own. So even though they're not being lived in, they look like maybe they're occupied or, okay, or being yeah. taken care of. Um, and then there's some newer buildings that have been built in more recent years. Okay. Do you have a, a winter influx and then people leave in the summer or like I'm just thinking snowbird population that comes down here? Yeah, or? as far as visitors, uh, we generally have a, a little bit more of a visitor count in the winter months because of the snowbirds, but there's not a big difference between summer and winter. Population-wise? Well, I'm talking daily visitors. Daily, okay. Not, not people that live here. Our, our population is 12. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, you know, there are people that have places and they might come up occasional weekends, but that'd be more steady through the year. Okay. You know, it's not, they're here for the summer and gone for the winter or vice versa. Well, what a cool thing to have here as far as, far as a small town goes. Uh, this store is just unbelievable. And like you said, it was been, it, okay, let's, let's go back in the history a little bit. You were saying that he ran the store for about 17 years mm -hmm. and then he leased it. Did he lease the store with the items in it or was it, was a store operating at that time? It was operating. I don't know what the lease agreement was per se. I just know that he leased it out for a number of years and then, like I said, 1908, sold it to the, the James brothers. And then they ran it through 1927. 23. 23. Closed it in 23. We actually have the calendar hanging on the wall. And January of 1923 is torn off the calendar. February and the rest of the months are there. So I'm guessing that the store closed in February of 1923. Wow. Okay. Do you want to get into why it closed at this point in time? Or do you want sure. to talk about it later? Sure. Um, to really understand why the Jameses did what they did with this building, I think you have to know a little bit about the family history. And I think it's an interesting history. Old Mr. James was William James. He had been a mine superintendent for Comstock, big mines out in Nevada. He had gone back to Pennsylvania to move his family out west with him. 
On their way back out to Comstock, they stopped at Fort Craig to resupply, and Fort Craig is on the river north of Fairways. When they got there, they found out that Mrs. James's brother was a sutler at the fort. Didn't know he was there until they walked into his store. Really? He convinced them to come to Chloride, saying Chloride was going to be the next big boom town. So the family moved here in 1882. Mom, Dad, and six kids. They had three boys and three girls. Mr. James got a job with the Silver Monument, which was the largest mine in the district. Things went along pretty well for the family for about four years until he was killed in a mining accident. Mm. At that time, the oldest was one of the boys. He was about 14, and he became the head of the family. Uh, at that point in time, the three boys formed a corporation called the James Brothers. It included the girls, and they managed to keep the family together. Now, keep in mind, one of the boys is the next to the youngest of those six kids, so he's really just a little guy. The story gets better, because as those kids grew up, one of the boys became a rancher, one became a miner, and one became a businessman. By the time that 14-year-old was between 30 and 35, they owned this store, okay. the Pioneer Store. They owned the store in Cachillo, little town you drive through on the way up here. Okay. They had a wholesale supply house at Engel. Engel is about 20 miles on the east side of the river from Truth or Consequences, and that was the closest railway. From Engel, everything had to go by freight wagon to the outlying communities. The Jameses had both a freight line and a stage line. Now, the lakes did not exist, but the river was there, and in order for them to get from Engel on the east side to most of the communities which were on the west side of the river, they had to travel about 35, 40 miles south to a town called Array. That's where they could ford across the river safely with the wagons and the animals. The Jameses had a third retail store at Array, and they had one down in El Paso. Now, in wow. addition to that little business empire, they put together a huge ranch up in this area. It extended to the north just a little ways, went almost all the way south to Hillsboro, almost all the way back into TRC, including much of the latter's ranch, presently owned by TV mogul Ted Turner, and then way over toward the Arizona border. Because they had a lot of the timberland that's now inside the Gila National Forest, in addition to running cattle, they had logging and sawmill operations. And they became the major shareholders of the Silver Monument, the U.S. Treasury, and the Midnight Mines, which were three of the largest producing mines in the district, plus numerous other mine holdings. So Dang. Six kids. They did quite well for themselves. I'm impressed with your memory. <laughs> <laughs> I've been telling these stories for a long time. Oh, now. it's <laughs> obvious, because I'd have forgot about the time that you said he was 14 and had to take over the family. <laughs> Anyway, the, and, and the girls were involved in some of the business activities. One of them had a millinery shop here in, in town, sold ladies' hats. So the town died in 1896, and there was a mass exodus. The population of chloride went from 3,000-plus very quickly down to about 100, and then continued to decline from there. Most of the people that stayed on in the area worked for the Jameses. They ran their cattle, they worked their logging and sawmill operations, and they continued to do some sporadic mining. The Jameses ended up running the Pioneer store like a commissary, just as a convenience for their employees and their business operations. Okay. Other people who lived in the area could also shop here because there was no other place to get your goods and supplies. What's now Truth or, con truth or Consequences came into existence with the building of the dam, 1916. Okay. By 1923, that had become the large center of commerce for the entire area. Uh, automobiles are also starting to come into the area, so it's no longer such an arduous trek to get from here to there. Senior Jameses, that 14-year-old and his wife, are now getting old enough they don't want to have to hassle with the day-to-day -day operations of a little general store. And they really didn't need the income from it, so they closed it up. The reason they kept it intact is they had a very young son. The plan was... 
The son would be sent back east for his education. The town would have a resurgence, and he'd have a business ready and waiting for him. Not a bad plan if you think about it. And right. these guys obviously had some good business sense to have accomplished so much at such young ages. Right. So the son was ed uh, educated back east. Of course, the parents could not control whether there was a second boom in chloride or not, and there was not. Even if there had been, I doubt the son would have come back and run a general store. He was educated as a scientist, became a nuclear physicist, worked on the Manhattan Project up at Los Alamos Labs, and within his field of work, he is kind of world famous. So he was an absentee owner his entire adult life. This building sat here untouched, and we bought it from him all those years later. Wow. And everything just sat. Everything just sat in here, yep. This is so impressive. And so all of your items in here are more or less from about 1927. No. 1922. No. What did you say? Well, 23? 23 is when 23. we still closed. Boy. But a lot of the stuff is older than that. Okay. Uh, for example, we have the transit on display that was used to survey the townside chloride in 1880. And okay. it's actually a Civil War era transit. And that makes sense because after the Civil Wars, when the West really opened up and as people came West, they brought their tools and equipment with them. Right. And the store bartered for goods. So a lot of the tools and, and kitchen and housewares things may have been used. They were old. They were not necessarily brand new, but they were still in here for sale. Okay. So kind of secondhand store. It, yeah, it was, but it was more that they bartered. It wasn't so much a secondhand store as we think of secondhand right. stores right. today. Um, the store served a lot of purposes. It was not just a general store. Um, it served as a bank. And we know that from entries in the ledger book. People, if you had an account here, you could come in and borrow some cash and take that cash, you know, charge it to your account, and then take that cash and go do business someplace where you did not have an account. And of course, you ultimately had to repay it, so it's kind of like borrowing money right, from a bank. Right. The store served like a pawn shop. Okay. If you didn't have an account here, you could still get cash, but you had to have collateral. And we have notations where somebody came in and, and borrowed, say, $2.50, and there'll be a notation that says secured by watch in safe. When they paid the $2.50 back, they'd get their watch out of the safe, and that notation would be lined through. Okay. Uh, the store also served like a rental center in that you could come here and buy something. We have an entry in the, in the ledger book where a fellow bought a crosscut saw. Okay. He paid $7 for it. Two months later, he traded a crosscut saw to the store. I'm guessing it was that same saw. He got $5 credit on his account. So he had the use of the saw for two months for $2. He got his winter supply of wood cut up. He doesn't need that saw anymore, but he could sure use the credit for something else. Right. I would imagine the saw went back on the wall at $7. Probably. <laughs> so the, the store did serve a lot of different purposes you know, or different functions that are generally separate businesses today. Right. You know, they're not incorporated into the general store. Now, was it used also as more of a company store? You said that, that the employees were the ones that, that well, when, used the when store. When the Jameses ran the store, it was sort of a company store because they were the company. Right. It was their employees. So if the ranch hands needed a tool, maybe they're building fence somewhere and they need some tools, they could come here and get whatever tools and materials they needed and take it out, do the job. And when they got done, they brought whatever materials were left over and the tools back for the next person who needed them. But they could also buy 
their groceries here. See, I was I was you I know. was going more on that angle yeah. where the company gave them credit at the store in exchange for the work that they did and it ended they, up just being an indebted thing. I don't know that they a lot of people were indebted to the store because they were cash poor. Right. There was not a lot of cash. But the Jameses were very benevolent shopkeeps. And when times were tough, they made sure people had food on the table, whether they worked for them or not, uh, with no real expectation of being repaid. And we have tickets in the credit system that were unpaid at the time the store closed. They carried people on the books for long periods of time, and I'm talking a decade or more. Really? That's a long time to oh, carry yeah. somebody, but they did. Huh. That's interesting. That yeah. it, It's kind of rare for a business owner. Yeah. Well, I, back then it was actually, I think, kind of common really? for the store keeps to, to help people. If they could, you know. Right, they, right. They could but they still had to stuff. keep their doors open. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're, uh, when we first walk in, you've got uh, a post office up front. Mm -hmm. So that's where the original post office was? or Yes, the very first post office in Chloride was right there in the front corner. Uh, we have the certificate on display naming Daglish as the first postmaster of Chloride in 1881. Uh, there was actually a post office in Chloride until 1956, and after this store closed, it was in a number of buildings over the years. But the okay. original one was right there in the front corner. Wow. It doesn't look like it was real big, but I'm sure it took care of the purposes. <laughs> yeah, it would have handled the mail coming to this whole area. And then these glass cases that you've got uh, set up here with all the different uh, antiques, artifacts, these, items for these sale. These are the original glass cases that were in the building. Um, you know, you can see them in the before photographs. Okay. Before my folks yep. started doing the restoration work. That those are the same glass cases that we have here, and they were full. You can't see that they were full because of the, they're coated with dirt and bat guano right. in that picture. But uh, uh, It looks like quite the mess to have to clean up. Yeah, like uh, my, my parents spent between three and a half and four years wow. doing cleaning and restoration before they could really start bringing things back in. Had to take everything out to work on the structure. Right. So the display cases, the sales counters, the shelves, all of the merchandise, everything was taken out. The only thing that they did not take out of the building was the safe, which is over against the east wall right. there. And the only reason they didn't take it out is it weighs 6,000 pounds. So they <laughs> kind of worked around the three-ton safe. And that's a, that's a big safe. Yes. So, Scott, what, what's the picture on it? That is Buffalo Bill Cody. Oh, is it really? Yes. <laughs> Buffalo Bill Cody. And okay. The, the damage that you see on the front is from the back guano. Uh, okay. It, it was rather acidic and it etched through the finish. Fortunately, the safe was closed, so they couldn't get inside and cause any damage to the interior, which is really as, as pristine as when it was manufactured in 1883. Oh, that is beautiful. It is beautifully painted, the lettering and pinstriping all done by hand. Today, lettering is computer-generated, laser-cut vinyl they just right. press on. This has become kind of a lost art form. Well, and this is one of those old safes. It's probably four foot by four foot, has a set of outside doors that open up that ha are probably close to 10 inches, 12 inches thick. And then another set of doors on the inside with uh, a few little cabinet areas to put your valuables. So it has a double lock. It locks on the inside and on right. the outside. Right, there's a combination lock on the big outer doors. The inner doors and the inner compartments are all individually keyed. Okay. So we talked about being multi-purpose. 
Think about somebody that sold everything they own from back east, and they're coming out west to seek their fortune in the gold fields or the silver mines. They've got $1,000 maybe. Right. That's a huge amount of money back then. Back then, yes. Well, the bank here in Chloride failed before it ever opened which is part of the reason the store served as a bank. And I can imagine that the store owner would rent out those little boxes like safety deposit boxes. Okay. Well, now the bank sits across the street, correct? Mm -hmm. And that then that was built and failed. Yeah, the, the bank was built in 1884. They had their checks and deposit slips all printed up. They were all set to open, but it failed before it ever opened. It did open as the ninth saloon in town. It was called the Bank Saloon. <laughs> okay. And so they just kept, went ahead and kept the labeling. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, they advertised in the local paper that was printed upstairs, come to the bank for your liquor. Okay. And so a lot of people have seen that in some of the ghost town books. They've reprinted the you know uh, copies out of the newspaper and stuff. And people come here and say, well, did your bank sell liquor? <laughs> well, this one did because it was actually a saloon. <laughs> it was a saloon. Yeah. Okay, and so your printing office was upstairs. Yes. So they had a full-fledged paper for the town? and. Yes, the Black Range newspaper uh, was printed upstairs between 1882 and 1896. When the town died out, they moved the presses down to Hillsborough. Okay. Uh, we do have some of the printing blocks on display that got left behind, and we have one of the old newspapers on display. And it was not just the newspaper office, it was a, a true print shop. So if you wanted to have business cards printed or a flyer printed, you could do that upstairs as well. Wow. But it was also the newspaper. Sounds like you guys had everything here. Yeah. The only thing this town didn't have was a church. Oh, really? Yeah. But they did have a bank saloon. They, well, <laughs> there were as many as nine saloons in this town oh, during really? the boom years. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere from six to nine saloons, depending on what year you talk about. Um, it had everything. In addition to the Pioneer Store, which was a true general store, there were a couple of dry goods stores, a hardware store, a pharmacy, a bakery, a butcher shop, a millinery shop, a candy store, a livery stable, a blacksmith shop. They had a much beloved town doctor through the life of the town. Judge Holmes has had a law office and real estate office here. They had a school. Um, basically everything that a town would have, except they didn't have a church. And I think the only reason they didn't ever build one is they didn't have a preacher here. Now, anytime they could get a circuit-riding preacher to come into town, they'd have church service, and, right. and they'd hold it in one of the buildings or in somebody's house. And on the Sundays when they didn't have a preacher, families would just gather in their homes and read the Bible or whatever. Okay, now did Preacher Lewis come up this way? We were at uh, Truth or Consequences, and they had a deal about the preacher that would walk and knit. I don't know the names of any of the preachers that they might have had come through here, so maybe he did. It was just an you interesting know. story, because yeah. I guess he walked from Las Cruces all the way up through Hillsboro and, and on over to Silver City, I think, and then it would take the train back to Las Cruces. Huh. You hadn't heard that story. No, hadn't heard that story. Well, but if you go over to Hillsboro, or <laughs> if you go over to Hillsboro, they got a whole section for the for the guy. Huh. Yeah, he would he would hitch rides. He would walk one way and then take the train back. Yeah. But uh, if somebody offered him a ride, he'd hitch a ride. But other than that, uh, he he did all of the walking and he knitted on the way. Huh. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I know of a cowboy that would sit on his horse when he was tending the herd and knit socks for himself. Oh, really? Because he refused to wear store-bought socks. And we actually actually have a picture of him. It's a drawing, not a photograph. Uh -huh. And he was the, a 
cowboy friend of one of our seven old timers. And his wife immortalized him for us in this little drawing that she did. And it's him sitting on his horse knitting a sock. That's cool. <laughs> I just yeah, I, I just don't think of men knitting that yeah. often. That's that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so as we look around the store, you've got a lot of bottles. You've got uh, tools, tons of tools. Yep. Uh, old traps. You've got a really interesting looking lawnmower, along with the the little sales ad that. Yeah, that's an early 1920s lawnmower, and I have actually had two fellas quite a few years ago that came through the museum at different times. They came through a couple years apart, and I would say they were both into their 80s when they were here, and that's probably been at least 15 to 20 years ago. They said they actually used a lawnmower like that when they were kids. Okay, now let me try and describe this thing. It's got a handle, a T-handle, wooden handle on it, comes down into a, a bar that has like spurs on it. And it looks like the back spurs drive the front spurs. And as you push this thing, they're all, the spurs are only an inch and a half round uh, for both the drive and the front. And it must turn really fast and cut the grass somehow or another. Yeah. It's just the strangest looking thing. I've never seen anything quite like that. Yeah, it, it's kind of a unique piece, and I had decided because the wheels, the drive wheels are so thin, I figured you had to have pretty firm soil, yeah, so they wouldn't just sink in, and pretty level ground because, like you said, that everything is pretty small. You know, they're, they're not very big, and nothing very woody or stemmy. Right. Yeah. And I also kind of figured that it would tend to tear the grass more than cut it. It looks like it. But the first fellow that came through, I asked him, did it really? cut the grass or did it just kind of tear it? He said, no, I did a pretty good job of cutting. I have to take his word for it because yeah. he's actually used one. That's interesting. <laughs> then you've got a child's uh, coffin here. Yep, that was left over from when the Spanish influenza epidemic went through this part of the country in the... Uh, 1918. Little, yeah, a little over 100 years ago. Okay. And and uh, was that still in the store too? Did no. they sell? Did they sell this? No, the... Both the mortuary and the casket factory were in Fairview, now called Winston. Okay. And the cemeteries are both located here in Chloride. Fairview, now called Winston, has never had a cemetery. A number of years ago, um, well, during the epidemic, the mortuary couldn't handle the number of bodies. And so Frank Winston, who was a prominent businessman in Fairview and for whom the town is now named, loaned the use of his carriage house as a temporary morgue. And I guess it was convenient because it was right across the street from the casket factory. Well, in the 1940s, a rancher got the job of cleaning out the old carriage house. And in doing so, he found two coffins that had been left inside, this one and one that had a glass lid. His wife used that one as a flower box in their front lawn. And of course, it <laughs> disintegrated over the decades. Uh, he passed away. She sold the ranch, was moving into town. She had an auction to get rid of things she was not taking with her. This was one of the items in the auction. Oh, wow. When we learned the, the story behind it, because, I mean, it's kind of an odd thing to find at an right, auction. Right. I expect to find farm equipment, ranch tools, maybe a few household items, but certainly nothing like a coffin at a ranch auction. Right. right? So my parents 
you know, got hold of her, asked the story. And once they learned its history, they decided they didn't want it to leave the area because chances are if it had been used, it would have been buried here in chloride. Right. So they bought it at the auction uh, to preserve it and, and to put it in the museum. And the old timers told us there was a madam in town that would donate satin to line the children's coffins. She would not do it for the adults, but she was looking out for the little ones. So even though she was a soiled dove, she must have had a heart of gold. Cool. <laughs> and then you've got some, some clothing here, vintage clothing. Mm -hmm. Now, was all of this still in the store? No. I was going to say, the, it sure well, is clean for having been bat guanoed. The women's clothing I found in one of our other buildings. These belong to Minnie James. She okay. arrived in, in Clark in 1882 okay. with the family as a young girl. These are circa 1890s when she was a young lady. And Minnie is the one that actually had the millinery shop here in town. Oh, okay. And so those were some of her clothes. These little boys' clothes we did find in this building in a small suitcase that had the name Eddie written on it. Really? And my folks kind of speculated they belonged to Edward Jr. He was due in for a visit, so my mom got them cleaned up, put them on display. He came into the museum. He spied those. He started to laugh. And he said his mother always insisted on dressing him like little Lord Fauntleroy. And he remembered having <laughs> the silk stockings to go with the, the little brown outfit. So he identified those as his, and he recognized those as his Aunt Minnie's. Wow. So, yeah. That is so cool. And, and they're so clean. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing how well things sometimes have been preserved. It is. I mean, there's so much stuff that we were not able to salvage, but there was an awful lot of it that really was in amazing condition uh, when we started doing this work. Then you've got some different uh, mine uh, drilling bits. Yeah, this section is all early mining equipment and assay equipment for determining the value of the wagon loads of ore. And of course, being it was a mining town, it was important to have those things oh, yeah. available. So, but... There's drill stems. They use progressively longer drill stems as the hole would get deeper. Um, they had both chisel tips and star tips. What were the big balls for? Were those for? Uh, we're looking at, at balls that are anywhere from uh, steel balls, I guess I should say, anywhere from probably an inch and a half in diameter, maybe even an inch in diameter, all the way up to about three inches in diameter. Were those used for crushing the ore, or...? Yeah, there, there were actually two mills up the canyon that did the initial processing of the ore, a stamp mill and a ball mill. Okay. Uh, are you familiar with a rock polisher or rock tumbler? Right, right. Okay, imagine that same premise, but on a much larger scale, and instead of sand as grit to polish the stones, you had these steel balls. Okay. These little ones would have all started out the same size as the big ones. Oh. So... They're wore down a bit. Yeah, they've been wore down. So big rocks, you know, boulder-sized right. rocks, would be put into the drum. They'd tumble with the steel balls, and it just break the rock up into smaller pieces so it's easier to handle. Okay. The stamp mill was the same purpose. This is actually half of a stamp. Okay. There'd be another one up above. You'd put a big rock on the bottom one. Top one comes crashing down, and again, just to break the rock up into smaller pieces. And when she's talking about a stamp mill, I've seen some of these that are probably 20 foot high and probably have ton uh stamps on them that, yeah. that they put the rocks in between and it, and it worked on a cam to where it would lift the, the stamp and then drop it right. and uh, crush the rocks. Yeah, this was not quite that big of a stamp mill, but no, it's no, same, but same premise. Some of them can be huge. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got a bunch of test tubes and test tube holders. Yeah, that was assay equipment, again, for determining the value of the, the wagon loads of ore. Um, 
as I said, there were five things the miners could get paid for here, so there were five things they had to test for. The silver, gold, lead, copper. Now, were they all in the same mines? Would they would they drag ore out that had all of those yeah, items in the same? Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Mainly it was silver. Um, not a whole lot of gold, but, you know, if you found a little bit, that's the icing on the cake. Right. And there was enough of the copper, zinc, and, and uh, lead to make it worthwhile hauling it out. And so was most of this done pick and shovel uh, yes. mining? or This okay. was all deep underground, all hard rock mining. All hard rock mining. Yeah. Lots oh, of drilling. That sounds like a lot blasting, of Blasting, pick and shovel work. <clears throat> and that yeah. was all before mechanization where they had the jackhammers and that kind of oh, stuff yeah. they were doing. Wow. Yeah. No, they were using, like I said, the hand steels um, to drill their holes. So did you find powder and dynamite in here? Oh, yes. Oh, really? <laughs> Yes, um, there was dynamite still in here, and until we could get it out, we kind of kept people away from where it was. And one of the mines is still a functioning mine. Okay. Um, and we contacted them and asked them if they wanted the dynamite, and they said, oh, no, that stuff's so old, unstable. I was going to say the stability loses but it, from what I understand. They, they were very... Uh, good about getting rid of it for us. They dug a big hole, put it down in there, and then blew it. Did you get to watch? I wasn't here at the time, oh, so geez. no. I did not get to see that. <laughs> that would have been worth seeing. Uh, okay, you've got kind of a mineral display here with your assay, or, or most of these from local mines? Yes, this sample case belonged to Henry Schmidt. He was Boy, kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Uh, Henry had been educated as a chemist in Germany, and he emigrated right out of the university to the United States, and he ended up in chloride. And as my dad said, Henry did two important things when he arrived in chloride. The first was he surveyed the town site. The second was he married the judge's daughter. Okay. And their youngest child, Raymond Schmidt, was our primary historian. Uh, Raymond was born in 1897. He lived to be 99, and we had him for 20 years. So wow. we learned a lot of the history from him. But because <clears throat> his father was trained as a chemist, uh, he did assay work. Okay. He also was a photographer, had a photography studio here in town. And because he knew math, he could do the survey work. So Sounds like you could get just about anything done that you wanted to in this town. Pretty much. Yeah. That is, that's amazing. Yeah, people came from all over and they had all kinds of trades and skills and so forth. And yeah, they, they could do pretty much whatever needed to be handled here. Wow. Then you've got a whole bunch of really cool pulleys up hanging from the ceiling. You've got ox yoke. You've got several uh, hames and collars for horses, harness stuff, saws, your cross-cut saws, side saddle. Yeah, the side saddle actually belonged to Mrs. James and likely came out west with the family when they moved here from Pennsylvania in 1882. Wow. And then you've got another saddle. That saddle belonged to Johnny James, and he was the rancher of the family. Okay. Uh, the saddle was custom-made for him by Miles City Saddlery, Miles City, Montana. Okay. Uh, as far as I know, the saddle company's still in business. I think it is. We've, we've been in touch with them in recent years, uh, and they have all the records on the saddle. On that saddle? On that saddle, yes. Really? And we have Johnny's whole rigging. We've got his saddle, his bridle, his bedroll, his chaps, his hat, and then on the floor of the buggy are his lariat and his leather gauntlets or the, the leather cuffs they, they would wear to protect their shirt sleeves when they were rope and steers. 
And was all of that left here, or no, was that, that acquired that later? That was donated by his nephew, the man we bought the property from. Wow. What a cool deal that you could get all of that. And then you've got a wall that just has every kind of wrench, tool, hammer, uh, nail pullers. You got a camp suck on there. You've got nippers, hatchets, axe heads, monkey wrenches, everything. Yeah. And then blacksmith tools. Yep. They had tools for woodworking, metalworking, tools to make other kinds of tools. Um, like I say, they carried a little bit of everything here. And I like the idea that, that you could come in if you needed something, buy it, and then bring it back as a, as a rental <laughs> business. That, that just intrigues me, to be right honest with you, because well, it's so cool that, uh, that it was set up that way. Yeah, but that was the, the way they worked. I mean, that entry that I was telling you about, the crosscut saw, uh, that was from the very first ledger Wow! in, in the book. Uh, and you've got all the you've got all of those yeah, entries and ledgers, ledgers and everything. Yeah. That's just unbelievable. Still in decent enough shape to thumb through and and read. Well, we yeah, we we have one on display, and we have it under glass, so you cannot thumb through. Right, it. But right. it is in amazing condition. Wow, yeah, it really is in amazing condition. It's amazing that it hasn't deteriorated just because of weather and, and well, time. And, and especially when you consider they were there were six ledger books that were found down in the basement. Chloride um, Creek used to flood in the old days. Okay. And they had high water marks in here that were hip deep on me. Yeah. We're three steps up from ground level. That means that basement was completely flooded, plus mm -hmm. quite a bit of, of yeah number of feet above ground. You know that's how deep the water was in here. And so the, these ledger books were actually completely encased in mud. Ooh. And I don't know, maybe that helped to preserve them, but my parents dug them out and they cleaned up beautifully. Really? That is just yeah. unbelievable. And, and Raymond used to say when he was a kid, after the floodwaters would recede, he'd walk downstream and pick up the canned goods that had washed out of the store and bring them back to the store. <laughs> wow. wow. Then you've got a doll display here with some... Well, these are actually memorials to two of the seven old-timers that were very special to us. Okay. Uh, Cassie Hobbs, to me, epitomized the pioneer spirit. She was 14 years old before she lived in anything other than a covered wagon. Really? Never went to school, but taught herself how to read, how to write, how to do everything else you see on display here. At 16, she married a cowboy, went back to living in tents and covered wagons for quite a few years, and the willow pieces are examples of the cow camp furniture she would make. Every time well, they, she made those? Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Every time they get into a new cow camp, which was frequently, she'd have to start from scratch making furniture so they'd have something to sit on. She also had to build a framework of sorts to stretch the wagon canvas over so they'd have some kind of shelter. Her husband Earl didn't help with any of that because he's off breaking horses, building fence, whatever the ranch hired him to do. Well, in the late 1940s, Earl had a heart attack. He stopped cowboying. They settled here in Chloride and took over his parents' home. That's when Cassie started making more substantial furniture, of which the little bench is a very small example. We have an entire house full. Literally what every piece artist. of furniture you can imagine having in a home today, with the exception of the piano, was made by Cassie. Most all of it is carved, much of it more elaborately than this little piece. Table legs are often sculpted like they've been turned on a wood lathe. And the only tools she had to work with was a hammer, a handsaw, a couple of jackknives, a horseshoe rasp, and a hatchet. 
we have three of her five tools on display. She made almost every stitch of clothing that they wore, seldom used a pattern. She'd just measure you up and then start cutting and sewing. I have the piece of paper where she drew out her rose design for her applique and embroidery on this outfit. She made her own shoes. For most pairs of dress shoes, she'd have a matching handbag and bonnet. She also painted watercolors and oils, and we're actually working on the Cassie Hobbs Museum so we can get more of her things on display and people can really see what a pioneer woman could do with virtually nothing. Yeah. Just this little display, looking at what she did with virtually nothing, is mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, shoes, yeah. dolls, wicker furniture, uh, or, or willow furniture, mm -hmm. uh, and these this this arms on this chair are amazing because they're curved in like three different angles. They come yeah. up and then make a twist and then come out to almost a flat coming into the back yeah. of the chair. She'd cut her pieces of of the willow and then. Soak them in the crick right. to get them pliable, and then she could bend them into the shapes that she wanted. Wow. Yeah. And the dolls are, are very, very nice, too, I mean, as far as uh, lifelike. Yeah, she, uh, she actually had recognizable characters, uh, cartoon characters, like Blondie and Dagwood uh -huh. and Maggie and Jigs, you know, from the, right. the comic strips back in the 50s or 60s. I'm not sure when they yeah, stopped doing Yeah, you got to look those, back but, in history in yeah, order to find those, right. but yeah. But, these dolls that she made looked just like those cartoon characters. Really? And if it was a, a couple, like say Blondie and Dagwood, they'd have their wedding bands, and then the women would have little high heel shoes, you know. Really? Uh, they were about the size of the, the larger of these two dolls that we have on display here. But uh, and so did she carve the soles for the shoe? Are those wooden mm -hmm. or are they leather? Or? Yeah, the, the cowboy boots she was working on when she passed away, and we've put them out. So people could see how she would carve the heel and the vamp from a piece of wood. And then she had started to cut a piece of leather that was going to be the sole in the, underneath all of that. Wow. And these shoes are, these shoes are. I don't know. She had magic. Yeah. These shoes are, are crocheted or knitted. Yes, or, they're crocheted. And they're it's just a really fine crochet, like what you'd see on an old, on your grandma's uh kitchen table yeah. for a tablecloth. It, it's the same crochet thread that was often used for like tablecloths, exactly. And she's got the the uh, bottom of the shoe that's all crocheted really fine, and the cowboy boots are crocheted really fine. Yes. Tight. tight, tight, yeah. Right. And then the top on the shoes is a little bit looser. Yeah, but it's, it's got a that decorative is impressive. pattern. That is really, really yeah. impressive. Beautiful. Okay, and your other memorial is to Raymond Schmidt. Yeah, I mentioned Raymond earlier. He was our primary historian. Uh, as I said, Raymond's father, Henry Schmidt, the man that surveyed the town site of Chloride in 1880, so Raymond's roots went right back to the very beginnings of the town. Raymond was born in 1897, lived to be 99, spent most all of his life here in Chloride. Uh, as a young man, he worked for the Forest Service. He knew the Gila National Forest. I swear all 3.3 million acres like most people would know their own backyards. Wow. And when he was in his 80s and 90s, he could still outwalk us up in the mountains. We had a hard time keeping up with him. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So the, the pictures that we have, that's Raymond as a baby. Uh, he's the second from the right in the group shot as a young man. And then the oval framed one is, of course, more recent vintage. And then it's just some of little memorabilia stuff of his. Um, and one of the things that I see here, you've got a, a pair of, of glasses that he had. They look kind of like maybe sunglasses, or they're just well, in a dark case. 
but the ones that I'm really intrigued with are the ones that have magnifying glasses right. that hook into the glass frame right. and extend out probably an inch. Well, those are jeweler's loops. Okay. And usually when you use a, a jeweler's loop, you hold the item you're looking at in one hand, you hold the loop to your eye with the other hand, right. and you can look at the gemstones and, and so forth. Well, Raymond did watch repair. Okay. And he wanted to be able to magnify the vision in both eyes and have both hands free. And so he took a pair of jeweler's loops and set them into a pair of eyeglass frames. Today, jewelers <laughs> have the ones that they've, they right. wear a headband kind of thing and they just flip them down. So this is kind of the forerunner to what jewelers are still using today. Yeah, I've just not seen yeah. that, that setup. Well, he, now that explains why. Yeah. He, they were his. Yeah, <laughs> they were his. They were his. And that way he could do watch repair and magnify vision and, and have his hands free. And then we come around to some of the glass cases, and you've got all kinds of... Uh, Razors and cur old, the old curling irons that you'd heat up on the wood stove, yep. uh, hair spears, an old safety pin that, that's a really unique design, uh, mirrors, brushes, clippers, just all kinds of really cool stuff in this case. And then you've got a butter churn. Is this a butter churn? That is a small commercial size butter churn, yes. Okay. And it's and it's a square box. It's probably one foot square, stands about a foot and a half, two foot high, and then has a big handle for turning the the crank, which turns the inside part for the butter. And right. most people are familiar with the gallon the jug. Little, like yeah, this. the little gallon. And that's the size an individual household would have. 3,000 plus people in chloride, I'm pretty sure not everybody had their own milk cow. Right. I would imagine the store would buy the extra milk and cream from those that did have a cow, and they had the small commercial size churn to be able to make butter to sell to the families that didn't have a cow. This is just a larger, heavier duty version of, of the, the, the small one that the The jar with the crank have. on top, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then what is this? This is, a, this is another hand crank item that has a galvanized container on it that's probably a foot in diameter and it looks like it's got some sort of a beater on the inside Let me or demonstrate something. it, see if you can figure it out. Wow. Okay, as you turn the crank, this blade goes up and down and the cylinder rotates. So it's a crusher or a cutter of some sorts. Tell me. Well, specifically, it's called a cabbage chopper for making sauerkraut. Sauerkraut really? was a major staple in the old days because they did not have refrigeration. Canning is a big process, and sauerkraut does not have to be canned. Right. Uh, put it in a crock, put a lid on it, it'll keep almost forever. Most uh, cultures have some variation on sauerkraut. Now, I think you could have used this to chop any number of things, apples, onions, nuts. It's like the forerunner of the modern-day food process. Right. Exactly. Wow, that is really interesting. I wow, my mind's just kind of blown on this thing because I, I know that I know that they used to use the the. It looks like a grater that they used to run the cabbage through in order yeah, to a, shred a it. A slaw board or a mandolin. Right, yeah. and I've seen a lot of those. Yep. 
Well, the problem with those is you had to be careful not to get your fingers oh, yeah. too close to the blade, so it was hard to have the kids do that chore, right? Uh -huh. Mom could let the kids do this because their hands don't get anywhere near the blade. No. Mm -hmm. And to chop it, that, that looks like it'd be pretty efficient in chopping it, too. Yeah. Wow. And you've got quite a few kitchen items here with uh, beaters and canning jars, rolling pins, old irons. Uh, you've got the sad iron, and you also have some electric, old electric irons up here. Do you notice how this very early electric iron plugs in? Oh, yeah. Like to the light socket. Right. It's got a light socket that you screw into where the light bulb would go, and that's where the cord gets its power. Yeah, when they first brought electricity into these remote areas, most people couldn't afford to have much wiring done. Right. Typically, they'd run a single wire the length of the house, and each room would have a drop cord and socket in it. Only the wealthy people had an outlet somewhere in the house. So if you wanted to plug anything in, you had to unscrew the only light bulb you had in that room. And, of course, if it was an iron, that meant you had to do your ironing during the day. Otherwise, you couldn't see what you were doing. And actually, extension cords work the same way oh, to bring the pocket the, from yes. uh, that light socket down to a tabletop or a countertop where you could then plug in little appliances that you might have. And your extension cord is a braided wire again. Mm -hmm. That's, wow. And if you look at these early Christmas lights, you'll see they plug in the same way. Yes, they do. That is so interesting. That is interesting. That is really interesting. And then in this, you've got just a lot of, you've got some old stamps, some old uh, baseball cards, some, uh, an old barometer, a couple of barometer, banometer. That is for measuring fabric. A banometer is for measuring fabric. Yes. It, on the spine of the book, you see there's a, a little metal piece. There's yes. like a metal rod and a little loop that hangs mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. And there's numbers along the spine. Okay. So you put that piece that sticks out into the center of the bolt of fabric. Okay. And measure out. So it would tell you how much thickness. fabric was still on the bolt. And then you count how many wraps of fabric there are. And when you open the book, it's kind of like a mileage chart. You know, you go uh -huh. from point A to point B and where the two intersect tells you how many uh -huh. miles between. Well, you'd find each number in the corresponding columns and take it down and that would tell you how many yards of fabric were left on the bolt without having to unfold the whole bolt of fabric. They don't do that today. Today they no. have to undo, undo the whole yeah. bolt of fabric. And here so. they have a way to do it, but yeah. nobody uses it. <laughs> That's incredible. You I thought that some, was pretty good. Yeah. Got some old marbles, old top, uh, some dice, typewriter ribbon. Boy, there's a bunch of people that don't have any idea what a typewriter ribbon is now, isn't there? <laughs> yep. Some seeds, uh, compass set, just lots of really neat things. Lock. Boy, there's a lot of keys for that lock. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're back up here to the post office. And then, of course, you've got canned goods on the back. Now, is there still product in these canned goods or... Well, anything the rodents could chew through, they emptied for us. Okay. So, for example, we have an Aunt Jemima pancake flower box. The little cardboard box is sealed. The little paper bag inside is sealed, but it's empty. They chewed the back corner out. Oh. Now, tins they couldn't chew through, and we emptied those. The okay. contents was starting to corrode the containers, and we felt it was more important to save the container than the contents. Right, right. But that is the original Jim Beam. 
wow. still in that bottle. Still in the bottle. The seal's been broken, so it is slowly evaporating. One of these days it will be gone. And, and same thing, like this is a cork seal. It's not totally airtight, so you can see that has evaporated down to just a little bit left in there. And that you bottle. have some canned goods up there. Yeah. You didn't eat those when you emptied them, did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think they would have been too tasty. You've got a box of corned beef specially cooked. Now, was that these these items here were left here in yeah. 1923? They were all in here for wow. sale at the the store was open for business one day, and the next day it was just sealed up. That is so with just everything left. And it's inside. so interesting that nobody came in and and stole anything or took anything. Well, there were several things that worked in our favor as far as these buildings not being looted and vandalized and and messed with. First of all, this is pretty much the end of the road. You're in chloride because this is your destination or you're lost. Right. It's not on the way through to someplace else. Mm -hmm. The other thing that was really great was of those seven old timers, four were men, three were old time cowboys, and they all still had their 44s. And if they didn't wear them, they had them hanging handy in the house. I can remember Earl Hobbs saying, oh, I'll shoot first and ask questions later. And he is just ordinary enough. I don't think I would have put it past him. <laughs> Old Tom Walton had been the ramrod of the Ladders Ranch for many, many years, and he wore his sidearm. And Dad asked him one time why these buildings hadn't been looted or vandalized or you know otherwise messed with. And Tom patted his hip, and he said, they's one road in, they's one road out. That was the original neighborhood watch. Yeah. With only 13 people in town, they knew all the local vehicles, including the outline ranch vehicles. When a strange one drove through town, they knew it. They knew how long it took to get up to the end of town, turn around, and come back. And if they didn't come back within a reasonable length of time, they'd strap on their 44s and go see what was going on. How cool. So, yeah, that's how I cool. Yeah. And then you've got several scales. Were these yes. were all of these scales used in the in the store, or did you find these in other locations also? No, all three of those scales were here, and they all will calculate the prices of the items being weighed. Really, which I think was pretty amazing. Um, I imagine they had one scale for meat. They had one scale for dry goods, uh, okay. flour, sugar, right. coffee, and one scale for produce. Uh, there also is a small candy scale on the okay. back counter over there. And the kids would come in with a penny, and for a penny they could get a whole handful of, of candy. Um, they it would have been worth picking up a penny back then. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you made a dollar a day, if right, you were right. lucky. <laughs> um, and then we have a countertop feed scale, I call it, uh, down here on this bottom shelf. Okay, okay. And... The scales that will calculate the prices, they'll weigh up to about 30 pounds. Okay. But I can imagine that the store owner, you know, he's buying 100-pound sacks of flour, sugar, coffee, rice, beans. He wants to make sure he gets 100-pound sacks, that his supplier isn't shortchanging them. Right. So this scale would weigh maybe up to a couple hundred pounds. Okay. I'm not sure what its top weight would be, but I'm going to say at least two or 300 pounds. He can check those when they come in and make sure that they're right. Then the customers come in, they want 10 pounds of flour, pound of coffee. You know, he has the, the smaller scales that calculate the prices that can weigh that out. Okay, now how did they calculate the prices? Well, the scale, the scale that we're looking at is kind of a, a teal green, I, I guess is the color I would color or say. It's got a plate where you can put your produce or whatever you're going to weigh, and then it's got a set of scales 
that come across here that I'm assuming when you put weight on here, it tells you how many pounds you have. And right. Then... The, the numbers along the bottom here are your price points. Okay. And you would read the weight right here in the middle. And so as I put a little bit of weight on the tray, you can see that like there's a pound. Okay, one pound. And if it's 10 cents a pound? You would just follow across the red line to the 10. Okay. And it would tell you the price. Now, by shifting the decimal point, that 10 could be a penny, 10 cents, a dollar, $10. Right. So you can get a lot of different price points. And all three of them work on a variation of that same idea. Okay. Now, they also had the big feed scales floor model scales. Well, now with this scale back here, you didn't have everything priced at, at no. uh, $9.99. It was all priced at $10. <laughs> Otherwise, you were having to do a lot of extra math. Right. Now, this scale will weigh thousands of pounds. Okay. Um, this disc, hold your hand <clears throat> up. We've got a round disc that weighs 2,000 two pounds. pounds. Oh, when you put it on the scale, it weighs 2,000 <laughs> yeah, pounds. Yeah, it actually weighs 4 pounds, but it will offset 2,000 pounds okay. when it's set on the scale. Right. So I was feeling really strong there for a second. <laughs> but they sold livestock on the hoof. They had to be able to weigh that 1,500 or 2,000 pound steer to know right. how much to sell them for. They also took in wagon loads of ore. As trade, there's an entry in the ledger book where a fellow brought in 13,230 pounds of ore. So they had to be able to weigh 13,230 pounds. And I imagine it was kind of like the big semi-truck scales today. Probably they had four of these, put one wagon wheel up on each right. one, weigh the wagon load, go offload it, bring the back, the empty wagon, and that's the tear weight. And the difference is... Right. The, the merchandise, the or in this case, the ore. Uh, wow. So. Wow. That is so interesting. Yeah. And you've even got some, what, what are these, uh, feed, or feed bags or whatever that say Chloride New Mexico on them? Well, CM and R Company. Yeah, CM and R is Chloride Mining and Reduction Company. Okay. Chloride New Mexico. Uh, we've got two types. This one has the O. And if you look up on the wall, you can see there's one that has a C. Right. Any idea what the O and the C might be for, or stand for? Oh, boy. Nope. You're going to have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, the O is for ore. Okay. Oh. And the C is for concentrates. So once it's been through the smelter, okay. it's been processed. I would never guess. And these bags are probably 18 inches wide, two and a half uh, feet tall. And would hold probably what if in ore they probably held fifty to hundred pounds. Yeah, I would I, think they they'd be pretty heavy if they were full. The one with the C on it looks like it's been used once uh, with the dirty ore, and the ones that have the O on it look like they are spotless yep, clean. They were in a box in here. Wow, that is so neat. Okay, what did they use to heat this? Uh, wood stoves. Th they used uh, wood stoves. Okay, mm -hmm. now the majestic wood stove up here is a cook stove. Is that yes. one that was for sale, or is that one that they actually used to heat? Well, we brought that in from one of the other buildings, but likely it was sold through the Pioneer store. Okay. Um, they would have had something more like this. More like the pot belly. Yeah. Okay, and they probably heated with coal? Wood. With wood. Mm -hmm. Okay. Was there coal in the area? Not close by. Okay. Okay. But there's lots of wood close by because we got the forest right here. Right. And this majestic stove is in really nice shape. 
I've got one myself, but it's not in that nice a shape. <laughs> well, that one actually didn't look like that when my mom started working on it. Uh, as I said, we brought it in from one of the other buildings. It had been a family cook stove for many years. And there was a hunting camp cook stove for many years. And I think the guys would fry up their bacon and eggs for breakfast, their steak and potatoes for dinner, and they never cleaned the stove. It sat in a building that was one inch of lumber between you and the elements. This was a dirt road until not too awfully many years ago. And every time a vehicle would go by, the dirt would sift between right. the boards or the wind would kick up the dust and it would sift through. So this was caked with layers of grease dirt, grease dirt, grease dirt, to where you could not make out any of the writing. Oh. You could not make out any of the nickel anywhere on this. Um, my mom spent about a year cleaning on it. She was afraid to use any harsh modern-day chemical cleaners, not uh -huh. knowing what they might do to the finish. So it was just mild detergent and lots of elbow grease, but it did clean up beautifully. Oh, it cleaned up really, really nice. Wow. Well, what else do you have here? I heard you talking to some people before we came in that you've got some other buildings and some we, we rentals do. and some other things. That... We have uh, another building that is part of the museum. It's, we call it the Grafton Cabin. And it's an old log cabin, and we have it sort of furnished the way a miner's cabin would have been. Okay. Um, it's got a rather interesting history to it. The, the, the town of Grafton was in this mining district, but the cabin is well-traveled. Uh, it went from Grafton to Las Cruces, spent 30 years of its life down there as part of the city museum complex. And then we brought it back up uh, at that time because they were going to bulldoze it, and we didn't want it to be bulldozed. Kind of the original mobile home. Yeah, <laughs> but it's pretty big, so it wasn't terribly mobile. Um, we have the Monte Cristo gift shop and gallery, which is in the old saloon building, which I will get you into. Okay. Um, and local artisans have taken that over, and they do some wonderful, wonderful work that's on display there, along with some old pieces that we just didn't have room for in here. Uh, we do have vacation rental cabins that are old original buildings that have been restored. One of them is actually the oldest building in Chloride, and it predates the town site. Okay. Uh, it was built by Henry, uh, Harry Pye, the man who found silver here originally. And Pye was killed by the Indians in 1879, so we know the cabin is at least that old. Okay. Uh, the cabins have been modernized. I mean, they look pretty rugged on the outside. We didn't change the outsides very much. Um, but they're fully modernized inside you know, with all the, the modern conveniences. So they're comfortable to, to stay in. Right. Uh, we have an RV park. So if you oh. RV and you want to spend some time in the area, we have an RV park with full hookups, water, sewer, electric, pull through so it's easy in, easy out. And we actually put that in because we had so many visitors to the, the museum say, gee, we'd love to come and spend a few days in the area, but where can we park a rig? And we are right on the edge of the Gila National Forest, and you can camp anywhere you want to inside the national forest but if you have a nice rv and you take it on up that road right. it's not going to be nice when you bring it back <laughs> it, it's a fine road to go on with the the trucks the jeeps you know atvs but and know. how do you reserve these sites um you would all of our contact information can be found at pioneerstoremuseum.com okay our website okay that's easy enough and i'll tell you that this area would be a lot of fun to hang out in for a few days. Uh, it's a, a beautiful drive coming in. It's, yeah. it's, when you look at the map, it looks like it's way out of the way, which it is. The road's windy, the road's curvy, but the drive is absolutely beautiful. Well, the, and I think that staying here 
your weather in the winter isn't terrible bad. I mean, it's it's 50 degrees out there right now, and, and we're is, recording this in uh, first part of February. Yeah, this, and this is typical winter weather for us. And I'm assuming you're not super hot in the summer. 90 is a hot day for us in the summertime. So it would be so. really nice even to, to come here in the summer as a getaway for a couple of days yeah. and explore, see, and, and do. Yeah, there's a lot to see in the area. Um, 3.3 million acres in the, the Gila National Forest. You can explore to your heart's content. Uh, you go up the canyon a ways, the canyon boxes up. You've got sheer rock cliffs on both sides of you. You get into the big ponderosa pine. There's pictographs. You can see the remnants of the old mining activity. Wow. Um, lots and lots of wildlife. We have deer in town here every day. Right. And, and sometimes we have people that come just for the peace and quiet. Do you have more deer than people? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. So there's more than 12 deer that show up every day. <laughs> I, I've had as many as 30, 40, 50, just in my yard, okay. in my front yard. And then as I go down the road, there'd be you know six or eight over here and another dozen over there. So, yeah, sometimes there's lots of deer in town. Wow. Okay, Linda. Well, I really appreciate your time taking it with us and talking to us about what you've got here. This is just amazing. Well, you're welcome. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you guys came to Chloride today. Oh, I am too. Very glad I came to Chloride today. And I always finish out my podcast by saying the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore. Go out of your way. Come see stuff like this. You'd be amazed at the history that is inside this building. And everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day. All the road and go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?